Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. And I am your co-host, Dux. Each episode of this podcast, one of us tells a story about video game history or culture to the other one who has no idea what we're going to talk about. I have no idea what we're going to talk about, and Tyler has a lot of ideas. Um, Too many ideas. <laughs> before we start, what have you been up to, Tyler? Oh, wow. So <clears throat> those of you who have listened to the podcast since the beginning have known that I have been in grad school for over eight years. And uh, just a few days ago, I submitted the final draft of my dissertation and became a doctor. No, not the medical kind. I can't diagnose medical problems. So if you come up to me and you're like, hey, what's this weird rash? I'm going to be like, well, you, I think you got ghosts in your legs, man. So I can't help on, you there. On behalf of everybody that has known you during the time or during intervals of the time in which you have been in grad school, I am very glad that this is over. <laughs> you never have to talk about your dissertation again. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I'm sure all yeah. of you are sick of hearing about it. Um, I'm just as sick of working on it. <laughs> so. And also, also congratulations, but that's another story. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, man. Um, a friend of mine said, all right, man, you're through the dissertation process. What do you think? And I was like, two out of 10 would not dissertate again. <laughs> no way. I'm done. Uh, yeah. What's up with you? How are you? So yeah, we, um, um, as people might have noticed, we've taken a short break. And that is because I have reproduced. Uh, I am. I have I have, like started a gestation period and slept a long t and ate a lot. And then I just, I popped out a second me and now I'm a dad <laughs> and yeah, that's a lot of work. Um, <laughs> and that's Tiny what I'm doing. Is adorable. All, it is, but it's, it's a lot of work and yeah, yeah. That's, what I'm, that's what I'm doing all day. Yeah. Yeah. So first off, congratulations to you as well. Thank um, you. And uh, yeah, so to all of you out there, sorry, we took some time off, but finishing probably the most important document of my life and docs producing another human really just took it out of us. So we needed some time, yeah, but good timing that we just did it at the same time. So it's just one month and yeah. not spread out it's really professional. Yeah. It worked of us. Out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you timed your reproduction. It was, it was planned ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, with all that, um, you know, once I, or, uh, last episode, we talked about how, um, you know, we kind of want to talk about like what's going on in the industry. And yeah. um, when we were getting set up here, you made a really good point about how, um, you know, history podcasts are also about the present. And so I feel like it's, you know, it was a good idea to, to maybe talk a little about what's going on in the industry and large scale changes that we see in the industry. And one thing that I wanted to bring up was a few days ago, at least when we are recording this, um, a whole bunch of workers at uh, Activision Blizzard have decided that they are going to form a union. Um, and it's not official yet, but I think um, that this is kind of like a big moment in the video game industry because one, at least in the United States, unions aren't as big of a thing as they used to be, or even as they are in other parts of the world. And there's been a push for a long time to unionize parts of the gaming industry so that um, unfair labor practices can be um, removed. And so um, I'm really interested to see where that goes, especially given all of the horrible 
um, things that have come out about what it's like to work at Blizzard, especially if you're a woman. Yeah. Every day there's new news about it, and it's terrible. And I'm glad these people are finding the courage to stand up to their corporate employers, right? That's the word. Yeah, yeah. that would be, yeah. This has been a long time coming, especially in a job like this where it's actually easy to form a union because big problems that unions face are usually scabs or hired mm-hmm. scabs, something you see with Amazon and especially Kellogg's right now, um, yep. where um, often it's not easy to replace these people, but you can replace people that do not require major qualification like computer scientists would. And I think especially in jobs that are highly qualified like this, you have a lot of leverage to form mm-hmm. a union like this. And it's good that these people are realizing that the corporate does not have their best interest in mind and needs to be challenged. I saw that they sent out an email <clears throat> to their staff that essentially amounted to, well, hey, don't form a union. Give us a chance to fix things. And it's like, um, what have you been doing for the last 30 years? <laughs> you know, like as, a, as someone from a country where unions are rather common and union strikes are rather common, um, the usual thing a corporation will do if a strike is coming up is, why are the unions doing this? This is just people bickering. We could just sort this out privately. You don't have to strike. And thereby they try to shift the public's union uh, opinion against the union. Right. This is an important discussion to have because, you know, for a long time, there have been discussions, not just at Blizzard, but about like, think about crunch, right? Like we've talked before about like how detrimental like crunch time is to getting a game out, especially when crunch lasts for months or years, you know, of this crazy overtime and the toll it takes on people. And, and, you know, is, is getting a game sooner worth crunch and, you know, I think that's really the answer is no to me. There's no Absolutely game that's not. worth it to me. Um, but I think that with a larger video game union, if that's not what Blizzard's talking about forming, like the employees from Blizzard, but with a larger video game workers union, you could help stop things like that, right? Yes, or make them illegal. Yeah. And right. also um, to tie this into our episodes is... This job is a job of passion, and these jobs of passion that people commit to because they love these jobs are very vulnerable to exploitation by um, corporate employers because you feel like you love this and you want this, and you always and, and you as an employee you feel like that the suffering is part of it, but it does not have to be. I, and me, as someone who comes from the education sector, that has a similar problem where people feel like I should, I shall not unionize, I shall not organize against the corporation because I want this job and I do it with passion. And if you do something with passion, you don't speak against it. Mm-hmm. But this is not true. You have to be healthy to do a good job. And that's what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so yeah, so that's my biggest thing in the game industry right now. Um, it's just that I feel like you know, this is a pretty big moment. And so that's why yeah. I wanted to spend some time on it. I have a very small thing to do for another okay. thing. And that's, you know, there's this this new thing where people are like, do not pre-order games because mm-hmm. pre-ordering games is evil. Um, I pre-order games. And I do not pre-order games by shitty companies that have been consistently unreliable or by companies that do not have any reputation. But I pre-order games from From Software. 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah okay so yeah I, th- I think sometimes it's it's good to say things like that and be like aware of company's reputation if it exists or if it's bad but mm-hmm. maybe maybe some companies have deserved our trust and i as soon as elden ring hit that was able to be purchased <laughs> on steam i was unable to resist it's okay because um I don't pre-order things anymore, but I definitely give certain companies a level of trust that I don't give others. Uh, for example, or for example, Devolver Digital gets so much of my my gaming money because yeah. um, I've never played a game by them that I didn't like. And um, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's okay to have a little bit of brand loyalty, <clears throat> unless that brand starts doing really shitty stuff, i.e. Activision Blizzard. <laughs> so, yeah. but, I would um, give. I would buy Dark Souls one again. I bought it twice. I would buy it a third time. Don't. I. I wouldn't even. If if they offered it to me, I just say yes. Okay, take another fifty bucks. Here it is. I. Okay, guys. <laughs> I can. I can. I re-pre-order it. Can you re-re-really release it? Okay, that was my small thing on pre-ordering. That would hopefully get us some hate mail. That's going to be yeah, 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 yeah. So speaking of, if you'd like to get in touch with us, <laughs> you can send us an email at codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at codexrexpodcast. And you can find me on Twitch. <clears throat> you can find me on Twitch three days a week. And I'm just vegan Tyler on Twitch. So don't feel free. Or I'm sorry. <laughs> don't so feel, feel free, free to reach out. <laughs> Can you tell it's early for me? Leave, leave me the fuck alone. Don't feel free don't feel to free. do any of these. <laughs> Stay away. Oh, also, we? we also take episode suggestions if any of you um, have anything that you'd like to say. Yeah, we actually did. Uh, we did, yeah. yeah. Do we okay. want to start the episode? Yeah, let's get into it. Here we go. <clears throat> Here we go. All right. So, uh, those of you who remember what my last few episodes have been about, I've been talking about the fifth generation of consoles. And why did I choose this one? Because it was mostly when the transition from 2D to 3D happened. And so, as we work through that, we're going to be talking about another fifth gen console today as we slowly wind down on that segment. So, <clears throat> with that, Ken Kudaragi was born on August 2nd, 1950, in Tokyo, Japan. Now, we don't know a lot about his early life, but a lot of articles speak about him being the kind of kid who liked to rip apart toys so he could see how they worked. So, like a tinkerer, one of those kids. He got really good grades in high school, and from what we know, he focused mostly on technical subjects. His father owned a small printing company, and we know that sometimes Ken would work in the evenings with his dad, um, like taking apart the machines. And so he went to school at the University of Electrocommunications in, Sh- in Chofu City, and apparently that's a pretty decent school for that kind of work from what I could see. And so um, after he got out of school, um, or university rather, he applied for and got his first full-time job at a company called... Sony. 
So you can already see where this is going to go. Yeah, this is obviously the Nintendo episode. <laughs> yep, 100%. <laughs> well, you know, it might be. <laughs> yeah, they'll crash at some point. They'll, they'll, there will be a clash of consoles, right? I there will be a clash of consoles in this episode. <laughs> so, so he gets a job at, at Sony. And so he was hired into their digital research labs. And what we know about Sony at this time is that in the late 70s and early 80s, um, he started getting access to some really cool, like exotic and cutting edge technology. Things like LCD displays, digital cameras, mm. you know, stuff that we totally take for granted now, but was like incredibly high tech back then. So, you know, it seems like a good fit for a guy who likes to tinker with things. So <clears throat> through his work, he starts getting noticed by his superiors. So particularly the president of Sony, Norio Oga. I'll just refer to him as Oga as we go throughout the episode. Um, fun side story about Oga. I guess that he was offered a job at Sony after he wrote them a letter complaining about how bad <clears throat> one of their tape recorders sucked. He just didn't like this tape recorder and he wrote them an angry letter and was like, your tape recorder is terrible. And they were, they like responded back to him and they were like, Hey, do you, do you want a job? <laughs> and so Oga <laughs> ended up becoming president of the company in 1982. Just, but not just immediately that he didn't go in and was president. <laughs> he, he, he went there after that and worked a bit and then they noticed that he's qualified enough to be president. Right. Right. They didn't just hire some random guy who wrote them a pissed off letter. <laughs> Man. <laughs> that would yeah, have been he, a had nice to, he had to prove himself first. Okay, yeah, it would have. Sorry, I just like cannot clear my throat. <coughs> cut that all out. Get rid of that. I will not I will not cut anything. Gunk Tyler is canon now. <laughs> Gunk Tyler is best Tyler. Cut it yourself. <laughs> Cut it yourself, loser. <laughs> okay. So what made Kudaragi get noticed? What was different about Kudaragi was that he was very outspoken. And sometimes he would be described as uh, maybe brash. So in a normal company in Japan, <clears throat> being this outspoken and maybe overtly combative with your superiors, um, that wouldn't fly. In fact, in a lot of work culture in Japan, I don't even know that that would fly now. And so <clears throat> at such a time, he would probably be reprimanded or given a different job. But Sony at this time was run by engineers, and they knew that he had talent. And being critical of authority didn't matter so much when he had an eye for engineering. Okay, so he's, 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 he's kind of a wild card, but the engineers let him fly because he does a good job. Exactly. And this is a theme that you'll see throughout this episode. So <clears throat> Oga, he sees Kudaragi and he sees this guy as a potential protege. Oga is running this company of very conventional workers who do not break the mold. And then along comes this guy, Kudaragi, who just knew how to shake things up when needed. He knew when to complain to his superiors who were getting in the way of progress. And so Oga sees Kudaragi as a way to maybe break out of this rut that they had been in as a company. And it wasn't necessarily that Sony wasn't successful. Um, I think, I think of this as like, 
you know, he wanted to keep innovating, right? Break the mold, break out mm-hmm. of the same thing that they've been doing. So <clears throat> with this, Kudaragi starts moving up a little bit at Sony. Now, we don't exactly know the chain of events here in his personal life. Um, Kudaragi's personal life, that is. But we know at some point he got married and he had a daughter. And then sometime in the mid-80s, he picked up his daughter, a Nintendo Entertainment System, an NES. And the story goes that he was watching his daughter play it, and he suddenly had this realization of the potential that video games held. So, Sony was working on some tech. And in 1986, they worked with Philips Electronics to create a new kind of CD-ROM. Now, the original CDs could do a lot of stuff in the context of the time, including being able to store audio, video, information, etc. But one of the limitations of CDs at this time was that they could not run all of those things simultaneously. So if you wanted to listen to audio, great. But that was it. That was all you could do. But after working with Philips, they create something called the CD-ROM XA, which allowed them to be able to do all these things at the same time. And so that this meant for the purposes of games, you could potentially create things on CDs that could actually 3D render objects. And so the possibilities were huge. We'll come back to this later. So just to recap, Kudaragi gets in at Sony and he starts getting really good tech access to really cutting edge tech stuff that maybe other people at the company don't have. So sometime around 1986 or 1987, not sure exactly of the year, Nintendo reaches out to Sony. See the NES had come out in 1983, but they were starting to see competitors who were making some really neat stuff. Now remember the Genesis launched in 1988. So this is like a pre like before the Genesis was out, They're looking around and going, well, hey, wait a minute. Some of our competitors are making really cool consoles. We need to keep up. So Nintendo wants a sound chip for their next generation of 16-bit consoles, and they want Sony to produce it. There's a problem here. And that problem was that Sony was not interested in making video games or even making parts for video games. But Kudaragi was. And Kudaragi had been impressed with Nintendo's console. Remember, so he had watched his daughter play it and was like, wow, this is crazy. So he decided to start doing some work for Nintendo on the side. Kudaragi knew that his superiors would disapprove, so he just didn't tell them what he was doing and started developing chips for Nintendo in secret. I bet that's that's a good way to get in trouble. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Yeah, it is. (laughs) So he eventually comes up with a design of what would eventually be known as the SPC 700 and gave them some, um, gave them some of these chips to representatives from Nintendo as a tech demo. And they were very impressed. And then eventually the higher ups found out about the project and well, they weren't thrilled. And from what we know of the story, he came close to losing his job. That was until his friend, President Oga, stepped in, saw the project, approved it, and allowed Kudaragi to finish the work and finalize this deal with Nintendo that he had sort of made on his own. This chip that he made ended up being in the the Super Nintendo, 
the SNES. And it was the sound chip that made the, the consoles sound so good compared to their competitors. So if you're ever listening to SNES music, it was rendered by a chip that Ken Kutaragi at Sony made. Neat. Okay, so this, this backroom deal put Kutaragi in Nintendo's good graces. And they really liked him, right? Like, willing to go against his own company to get them what they needed, and he put out a killer product. Yeah, he's a so, an agent now. <laughs> how, how can you? I, I don't. I don't understand Nintendo. How can you trust someone like that? He might cost you again. Maybe, maybe this time you're the one that loses. Super good well, tech. You know how things always go with double agents in movies. It always works out perfectly, and nothing bad ever happens. Yeah, never. So, <clears throat> Kudaragi's in Nintendo's good graces, and so Nintendo starts seeing that um, CD-ROM tech uh, is is a thing. And that Sony can make it, right? Like we were just talking about this crazy new CD-ROMs that they could make, and it was right around this time. So Nintendo's like, we want in on that. So Sony or um, Nintendo starts seeing, you know, CD-ROMs, and they're like, what if we added discs? What if we added a CD-ROM drive to the SNES? So they contact Kutaragi to work on it. It would be the first time that Nintendo used discs in their technology because they always use cartridges and they had this previous working relationship with Sony. And so they start working on forging another partnership. Now, again, most at Sony not interested in gaming. They thought that this was a quick fad for kids that would just die out. It'd be a waste of time, wasted development hours. But again, Oga talks to Kutaragi and gives Kutaragi permission to work on this project with Nintendo. So, <clears throat> they decide that they're going to create a SNES add-on that can play CDs. It would called it would be called the SNES CD. And again, you could play CDs on your SNES, but internally it was known by another name. They called it the PlayStation. Dun, dun, dun. PlayStation. Oh no, who would have expected this? <laughs> Such a plot twist, Tyler. Ooh, man, these fifth generation console episodes really turn into a real mystery once you did most of them and now only the really well known ones are left. It was really difficult from the start to tell where this was going to go. But thank you. This plot twist really warms my heart. The EA plot twist wasn't half as good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sorry for all this snark. I was but just going to say, you know, I, Docs, thank but you so I don't, much for this snark. I don't, but I don't know what you expected from me when you said, the PlayStation. <laughs> what? <laughs> no No, it's way. about what I expected. <laughs> now, what's really interesting, if you want a plot twist, yeah. okay, is that it's spelled PlayStation, but with a space in between the words. Oh. And you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. When I look at the way PlayStation's written now, it's all one word, but the S is capitalized in the middle, right? Well, there's a reason that it's different now that we'll talk about in a minute. But anyway, they called it the Play Space Station. Okay. <clears throat> so they also discussed what if they created a console together? This would be something that Sony would design, but it would be able to play uh, SNES cartridges as well as CDs. And this console they called the super disc okay yeah your face <laughs> okay yeah. what an exciting name for a console the super disc they like the word super right it's, it's just a good word i mean yeah it was yeah 
everything is super to them, but <laughs> even now, right? Okay. <clears throat> so negotiations began and the two companies signed a contract. Now, somewhere along the way, and I'm not sure where or why this happened. I could not figure this out in my research. <clears throat> they started calling the console, which we just established was called the Super Disc. They started calling the console the PlayStation. So I don't know why, but like this is all sort of used interchangeably, but just like we'll go back and forth on this. But like there was a console that they yeah. were going to do and there was an add-on they were going to do. It's kind it of difficult to read these, these chronologies sometimes because maybe the sources are iffy, right? You don't know yeah. if it makes sense. Yeah. So well, we, we just work. stick with it and see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, in about a paragraph here, it's not going to matter much because <laughs> the projects are going to start getting cut. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so the work on these projects went on for a couple of years and rumors started to float around that maybe things weren't going as, as planned. It seemed like on both sides of the deal, people were unhappy. Kudaragi was running into issues as well. Sony was not giving him much support because, again, they saw video games as a fad. Um, and Nintendo was pushing back because it seemed like maybe they were having second thoughts on using CD-ROMs. Um, but Kudaragi pressed on and development continued. And now I won't get into the specifics of what happened on Nintendo's side, and we will save that for another episode. But in 1991... Both companies were set to attend the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Okay, this is a big deal. So, two days before the show, Kudaragi gets word, like secondhand info, that Nintendo was going to annul their contract with Sony. He starts making phone calls, but he can't get anybody to respond to whatever's going on. And so, they just ghost him. And so... Nobody at Sony knew what to do, but continue forward. So at the show, Sony announces that they're going to make a console that would play both SNES cartridges and CDs, and it's called the PlayStation. There's serious hype. People have all these questions. They take, you know, they talk all about this console that they're going to do. Then at 9 a.m. the following morning, the event hall is absolutely packed. And people are waiting to hear from Nintendo, the other half of this partnership. Howard Lincoln, the chairman of Nintendo of America, walks onto stage. And then, much to everyone's shock, he explains to the entire audience that Nintendo was no longer going to be working with Sony. Instead, they would partner, <laughs> they would partner with European electronics firm Philips. They were not going to proceed onward with the PlayStation project and were going to distance themselves from all work with Sony. Even with Philips, that's a big backstand. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, Brutal. yeah. Savage. <laughs> they, they waited until the show debuting their console to publicly tell Sony to fuck themselves. So the crowd was stunned. Sony was stunned. This was a big fucking deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Top 10 anime betrayals. <laughs> yes. Yes. It even so, plays in Japan. Uh, not in Japan, but it's the Japanese protagonists. It is, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so, to give you a little bit of uh, idea about 
um, why this was also a really big deal in the Japanese business community. They saw it as a massive betrayal, and it put Nintendo into a very bad light. Because for a Japanese company of such magnitude to throw away a partnership with another Japanese company and instead replace them with a rival from Europe during advanced stages of development, everybody in the business sector was pissed. It was like, how could you do this? How could you stab another Japanese company in the back like that? So why did they do it? Again, we'll dig into this when we do the episode on the N64, but for now, let's just summarize this as it was a contract dispute over who controlled what. Nintendo didn't feel like they had enough control and Sony was getting these like exclusive licensing rights for the for the SNES CD-ROM, and it caused all this contention. But with all of the surprise and horror and shock, the person that this fell the hardest on was Ken Kutaragi. He was 38 years old. He had worked most of his adult life at Sony. And due to this partnership with Nintendo, he was about to lose his job. It's like his project. It's like he brought his parents together and then they divorce again. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) He finally gets to make this video game console he's wanted and dad left to get a pack of smokes and also told him to fuck off when he walked out the door. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) So so, this deal is basically gone. Uh, His project had been shut down in probably the worst way that it could be uh, in the most public way possible at this show. And insiders at Sony had pushed really hard to avoid making video games, and now they were validated. They were proven right. One second. Is there like a scene in this where he stands in the rain crying and just screams into the void? (laughs) I can can picture it. Even though I don't know how he looks, I I can see him standing there all soaked, being like, damn you! (laughs) He's he's just got like a prototype PlayStation controller in his hand, and he's going, Nintendo! And he crushes it with all of his fingers and it <laughs> explodes into all directions. And there's a close-up of his face and the tear running down his, his face. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Yep. Oh, felt like it. <laughs> so <clears throat> Sony had been dumped basically at this last moment and in this relationship that Kudaragi had formed. And so this was supposed to be this glorious partnership that would show everybody that at the company that video games had merit, but it had failed and Kudaragi was done for. Or he would have been if again, it had not been for his friend, Norio Oga. See, Oga had too much respect for Kudaragi and what he had tried to accomplish. And he was not going to let him be fired over something that was completely outside of his control. Further, there was a, maybe a, bit of a feeling in the company that Nintendo needed to be punished for their betrayal, and Oga was angry. Internally, there was a meeting at Sony to determine how to move forward. The SNES CD was gone, but Sony wanted to keep this idea of the PlayStation, this idea of a console that was designed to um, basically work from the ground up to make 3D games. But again, there was this debate. 2D sprites could look really good and had a large appeal. 3D polygons were cutting edge, but brought their own issues regarding rendering them on a home console. Which year is this? So, this would be 1991. Yeah, so they already had, there was, there was 3D games already. And one trouble that 3D games have in comparison to 2, 2D games at the time 
is that you can't have the 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 the, the feeling of quality with 3D yet because mm-hmm. it's it it um, requires much more computing power to make 3D models. So right. that's a risk they had to take. It's true. And so that that was the debate that was going on. Do you just lean again into 2D or do you try and do something more cutting edge, even though it might not be perfect? And so then because of this, they're like, can we even do 3D on a home console? And so there was a debate like, well, maybe we should just ditch this. But Oga was steadfast in his desire to get something out of this industry. He was committed now too, And he was quoted as saying, we will never withdraw from this business. Keep going. Okay, so at some point in this process... Kuraki he was also reaches... standing in the rain and screaming that, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> There's a similar moment. Okay, um, good. <laughs> so at some point in this process, Kudaragi, okay, he wants to continue with this project. He reaches out to Sega, who was their biggest rival at the time. And mm-hmm. he ends up chatting with Tom Kalinsky, who's a guy you might remember from like yeah. a couple of episodes I've done. Uh, he was the head of Sega America. So they start entering talks. Well, what if we collaborated on a console? Sega had already made the <laughs> Sega CD add-on, which was their first step into disc-based gaming, but we're considering making a full console with the tech. There was common ground there because Sony ImageSoft had made eight games for the Sega CD previously. There's also another common ground. They're going to be like, hey, Sega, you know who I hate? Nintendo. And I know who you hate. Let's hate them together. <laughs> yes, it's we like, have a common like, enemy now. Yeah, yeah. The, I, mean, I mean, Sega and Nintendo have been rivals for a while. So this is just like, hey, man, I totally understand you now. <laughs> let's, let's do this. I'm, I'm all in. Let's, let's ruin these people. <laughs> <laughs> so... With that in mind, for a few months, they hold some very secret meetings to try and figure out what this would look like. But again, Kudaragi is having some issues. We don't know what Several happened Several months in the of throwing darts at a picture of the Nintendo CEO. <laughs> <laughs> Just whipping them, man. <laughs> so <clears throat> we don't know what happened in the meetings, but Sega was apparently a bit worried about the fact that Sony had no experience in the gaming industry. And so Kalinsky, as the story goes, he went to Japan to talk to the board. And they said something to the effect of, and this is not an exact quote, but they said something to the effect of, well, that's a stupid idea. Sony doesn't know how to make hardware. They don't know how to make software either. Why would we want to do this? So, Kudaragi... Similarly, was coming back and telling his co-workers that he wasn't sure what he was interested in what Sega was working on either, and that he wasn't sure that he should take the offer. And ultimately, the two companies did not form a partnership, and Sega went on to go and make the Saturn, as we discussed in a previous episode. Okay. Yeah. So ag- ag- again, here's Sony trying to make this partnership with another big gaming company that ends up not working out. Oh, again? Again. And this time they even had the same enemy. And then they they meet up for six months. And then they're like, these guys are stupid. We don't want to work with Sony because they have no idea about anything. Even though Sony has lots of ideas about things like getting betrayed by people that they apparently put too much trust into. So that's, <laughs> that's a good idea. 
Exactly. Yeah. So, um, but hey, you know, maybe mom and dad can reconcile. And so Sony and Nintendo start chatting again. And sometime that year, they work out a deal. They would create the PlayStation for Nintendo. And they would have a port for SNES games. But Nintendo would get all the profit from the games. And they still wanted to use the chip that Kudaragi made them previously. Oh, this smells and no bad. one knows. <laughs> yeah, it does. And nobody really knows why Sony made this deal. Probably because they were heartbroken. Um, because hardware, as we've spoken about on here many times, doesn't really make gaming companies money at this time. Okay. So they make a bunch of prototypes. Um, it is estimated that they made around 200 of these. And note that there were never any games that worked on it. I just sent you a picture of what one of those prototypes looked like. Yep, yep, yep. Would you would you like to tell the world what the first PlayStation looked like? It looks like the NES, but lengthened. <laughs> and <laughs> or maybe maybe it looks like the PlayStation One and the NES had a love child. Yeah, maybe maybe it like definitely that. looks like a baby. Yeah, yeah, it's a little baby. Do I see um, anything special? No, it just has a lot, a lot more buttons all of a sudden. Yeah, and it and has I a CD slot in front and like a CD player because the original PlayStation later on would have a CD compartment up top that you have to open up. But this one has it still up front where you would have to push it in. And there's the cartridge slot in the back. Actually, while we talk about this, I don't get the entire concept about combining cartridges and CDs. I've, I feel like this, somebody didn't think too much. Like, maybe they were, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, but maybe it made sense to them. I'm fine with it. Yeah, it's weird to me because it's like, um, it's like they wanted you to be able to do both, which I guess is what the Sega CD was, but it, it just felt very strange. Maybe it's because they just assumed people already had all these cartridges and that they would want to play it's, them. Okay, right? it's downward port compatibility, right? Like or backward compatibility, I backward guess is how we call it. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes. I think one thing I want to point out about this particular prototype here, and, and Docs is right, it literally just looks like a white box with some buttons on the top, like literally like the two consoles got mushed together, is that it specifically uses uh, like a like an uh, uh, an NES controller. Like oh, yeah, same you can see colored buttons too, and everything. Yeah. Yep. So it's really fascinating to see. It literally says PlayStation on it, and it has like an NES controller. Fascinating. I mean, Nintendo never really, they have these really eccentric controllers, but they mm -hmm. never really change the basic setup, right? The buttons are always in the same positions, just the shape changes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Nintendo is really weird on innovation, so. Yeah. Okay. So as far as I can tell, they made these 200 prototypes and it never went any further than that. Um, behind the scenes, Kudaragi, which pus was pushing very hard to move away from Nintendo and just do something different. He wanted their relationship to be done. And so he wanted Sony to cut ties with Nintendo, but stay in the industry. And he did not want them to back down just because things had soured with other companies. So he, push he pushes to end the deal with Nintendo. And by May of 1992, the companies had finally cut all ties. The breakup was official. So where do they go from here? Oga again calls a big meeting the next month, consisting of several top members of the board. Kudaragi shows up to the meeting and reveals 
that he has been secretly developing a new CD-ROM system for use at the country. Or uh, no. company, rather. <laughs> not the guy. Not this guy. Secretly doing things against his superior's wishes? <laughs> Unexpected plot twist. That was totally expected all along. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this guy is a wild card. It's kind of hard. He really to, is. To keep that I, I mean, Ogre was really putting himself in trouble keeping that guy employed, right? Because he, mm -hmm. he, put, he gets you into trouble a lot. But is he not shaking things up like Ogre wanted? Yeah, he definitely is shaking things up. <laughs> so he, he, he just walks into this meeting and debuts this new tech he's been making in secret. And so it would allow for the ability to play fully 3D games, and the tech was way ahead of what other divisions at the company had at the time. So he just drops this on everybody at the meeting and suggests that maybe it's time for them to start making their own console. Because computers had already started using CD-ROMs as their main source of gaming at this time, but there was not a home console that could fully make use of what CDs brought to the table. Oga was interested, but there were many at the meeting who were not. Some were still not enthused with the idea of making video games and insisted that this was a passing fad. And again, there was talk that these are just toys and Sony is not in the business of making toys like those rival companies, Nintendo or Sega and others at the meeting <clears throat> were perhaps just uh, justified here, really unhappy with how Kudaragi's last deal had went and how it had painted Sony in a bad light in the industry. Yeah, that last and one I understand. The first one just sounds like hubris, like we are too good for this. And this usually is the downfall of any decision-making process, right? But the last one I understand, like, why should we trust you in any way to do anything? <laughs> right? After everything you did. <laughs> oh, God. The electronic showman where they, oh, it's just... It hurts uh, me to think about being there. <laughs> so they're like, okay, maybe we just shouldn't do video games. Maybe we should just stick to audiovisual tech. We're good at it. We've been making it for a while. Everybody in the industry knows it. It would be way easier to just hammer out business contracts with what we're already doing. But of course, Ken Kutaragi had come with a plan. And he reminds Oga of what Nintendo had done to them and how humiliating it had been. Were they just going to accept what they had done to Sony's image? What Nintendo had done to all of their work? Were they just going to waste all of that work? And apparently this reminder supremely pissed off Oga in the meeting. And he agrees to move forward with a new version of the PlayStation project. As he apparently put it, go for it, do it. This is a project that Sony needs to be in. Wow. Yeah. So now we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but it is often said when we talk about influential people in the gaming industry um, that a lot of them have vision. Okay. And in Kutaragi's case, he wanted his division of Sony to be more than it was. He didn't just want Sony to succeed. He wanted to put a console in every household and this device would be the center of like all entertainment in the house. And it kind of gives me like a little twinge of a Trip Hawkins vibe, but maybe just from like a different angle, right? Like he wanted gaming systems to be like everywhere. It does feel like he has, um, because he has no loyalty, 
it feels like he is not even in this because of Nintendo, uh, not Nintendo, because of Sony. He's just in this for himself and his vision. And that's what you're saying, right? This is what gives you the Trip Hawkins vibe. The Sony is just the the bike he's riding on. He he doesn't care. Uh, so who 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 makes his vision come true? Well, considering how much he shops around to other companies, that does follow. I you know I can't purport to speak for him and his motivations yes, at this time, but it, it it definitely seems like it was pretty much anybody who could help him get a console made. Yeah. So okay, <clears throat> so. With this decision to move forward on the PlayStation, Ken Kutaragi's career starts to take off. Now, Sony, interestingly, had a lot of money in the bank at this time. They had money to burn due to their successes in other markets, such as their Trinitron uh, CRT displays and the Walkman. Do you remember the Walkman? Yeah. Yeah. I had one. My mother convinced me to get one uh, for Christmas one year. It's a very long story. And... um, like two weeks into having it, she dropped it on concrete and it broke. <laughs> so That's nice. yeah, good times. Uh, but the Walkman was very successful. Um, and so there were resources there to draw from. And so Oga puts Kudaragi in charge of a team with nine other, other people and specifically moves them to a subsidiary of Sony Music Entertainment Japan. So this console is going to be produced by the division that produces music. And so I thought this was a really weird call when I was writing up this episode. And so I did a little bit of digging. Why did they put them in the music division? I found a few reasons. One, part of this is so that they can maintain their own relationship with Philips uh, on which they were working with different, like a different disc-related project. And that disc-related project would eventually create the DVD. Oh. Yeah. Uh, the division had name recognition, and that would allow them to attract a lot of talent. And I guess that Kudaragi used this opportunity to recruit a lot of people who had come from some 3D graphics engine that was called like System G. It was some 3D workstation or something that was technologically powerful. And Kudaragi was like, yes, I want these people and I want them to turn that stuff into a console. Um, Plus, the music division had experience already using CDs for audio recording. And then I guess there was also some like legal mumbo jumbo where they needed like this particular project to be in a specific financial division. And so that's like why part of the reason they moved it there. But it was a good fit is what I was going to say. It sounds really weird, but it was a good fit. So at this point, we're at 1993, and Sony executives in 1993 officially give the green light to create Sony Computer Entertainment, and their first project would be to create the PlayStation. Internally, they keep going back to this discussion of whether or not they should do 2D graphics or 3D graphics, all in on, you know, all in on 3D or a little bit of 2D. We're all in on 2D. Apparently, the deciding factor on whether or not they would do 2D or 3D was that Sega released the game Virtua Fighter. And when it hit arcades, it had fully 3D characters. And it did so well and was just everywhere that Sony decided, well, maybe we should just focus on 3D. That's the small things, right? Like, yeah. you're, like imagine you're, you're these guys and this big business decision is ahead of you. How do you decide this? Because it's a, it's a gut decision, nothing else. They, they can't foresee the future. 
So it, it has to be small things like this. And on their way to work, they notice that virtual fighter all of a sudden is everywhere. So that's mm -hmm. how they make their gut decision. And that's the right call in the end because the 3D models of the PlayStation hold up to this day. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some jank because <laughs> it was the mid 90s. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of it really holds up. So, And so the console that they end up developing <clears throat> had some very high tech stuff at the time. And we're going to get into some some crunchy bits here for those of you who like it. Um, the entire thing had been designed around a single 32-bit R3000A RSIC chip. Supposedly, this allowed it to render 500,000 polygons a second, although the number was actually closer to about 350,000, uh, that is. Uh, it had a 33 megahertz processor, and Toshiba designed the GPU. It, of course, could use CDs to play games, which can hold a massive amount of content comparatively to cartridges. Yep. Um, but interestingly, because they decided to focus on 3D... And, and one thing, are far yeah. cheaper to produce and yes, don't are. need an energy source to maintain the safe, which all of the Nintendo cartridges need. They have a little battery in them. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they exported that to a, an external memory card if you remember correctly. Oh, yeah. There's yeah. little memory cards that you'd pop in. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, uh, one thing that I would note is because of this decision to choose 3D over 2D, it did not have a lot of dedicated hardware for 2D, which is actually why some games ended up looking, like some 2D games ended up looking better on the Saturn than they did on the PlayStation because the Saturn had dedicated 2D hardware. So that's one thing the Saturn had going for it. Nice. Okay. So in October of 1993, Sony announces that they will release the console, but they didn't say much else. Now, as a side note here, Nintendo comes back into the picture, albeit briefly. Sony's issues with Nintendo had led to a small lawsuit over the usage of the name PlayStation and the technology that had been developed during their partnership with Nintendo. Sony ends up winning the lawsuit... And as part of their winning the lawsuit, they end up removing the space from the name. So when I told you, when I told you that there was a reason that there was a space in the name, it was because <laughs> they got fucking sued. <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, well, we'll just make it all one word. That's so cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Instead so, of just coming up with anything else. I mean, that's yeah. a good troll move, though. I think that's why you it do is. it, right? In, yep. I mean, they, they could have chosen anything else. I bet they had a list of things. But mm -hmm. then what? But then, I know who stood up. It was Kudaragi. And he <laughs> goes to the to the to the whiteboard, and he 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 um, rubs it away, and just writes it down again, but without the space. <laughs> and he's like, "Not a single centimeter. This belongs to us." Fuck you, Nintendo. <laughs> he goes, Nintendo! And he crushes the marker in his hand and it just yes. explodes. <laughs> and it starts raining inside of the room. <laughs> Everybody's crying black tears as the Sharpie explodes. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so, fun factoid about this particular name change. For a time, they started calling it the PlayStation X 
which is why you sometimes would see it abbreviated as the PSX during Ooh, those days. That's why. I see. Yeah, I never knew. I saw that. Huh. I always yeah. were like, is that another version of the PlayStation 1 that I don't know about? It's not. Nope, I it see. was just a different name. Yep. And early advertising even called it the PSX, but then that branding sort of got scrapped later. Um, note that Sony was very careful that they did not originally call it the Sony PlayStation. Like, like you know, Nintendo was the Nintendo Entertainment System. They yeah. didn't call it the Sony PlayStation because, again, all these like stuffy office guys are worried that it would make Sony be associated with toy brands. So weird, but it fits the time, right? It because does. It, it, it still has the stigma of being a toy. Yeah. Yep. So <clears throat> by March of 1994, rumors start to circulate uh, about the console. Computer Gaming World reported that Sony would release their console in Japan by the end of 1994. And I don't know the context here, but apparently Sony showed off a bunch of like their tech to developers in this hotel in Tokyo and the developers were super impressed. And so like, I got no context from the story and I assume that it was like some kind of meeting and like a, like a, like a hall, meeting hall or something like that. But the way that I just kept reading it was like, almost like they were like, Hey dude, come back to my room. I got something to show you. <laughs> they take all these engineers back to a room, right? Hi, I'd like to go to the Sony suite, please. <laughs> underneath the sheets on their bed they're like they whip it out and it's just a bunch of tech and hardware <laughs> and it's and it's better than what they expected they're like oh i was expecting i don't know drugs or something but it's really <laughs> cool tech awesome <laughs> is this one of those weird engineer orgies that we were getting up to in the 90s oh oh it's just it's just technology it's sweet tech though <laughs> yeah um but this is complete conjecture on my part. I just want to be clear. No factual evidence to back this up. But if you remember, when we talked about the 3DO, we talked about how a bunch of uh, companies started deciding to work with Sony. And so some of the companies that started deciding to work with Sony after this tech was like revealed to them were, um, were both Electronic Arts and Namco. And so this lines up with the time period of in the 3DO story when EA starts going, maybe we should ditch the 3DO for Sony. So mm. I don't know if this is the exact event, but it was said in some of the stuff that I read that after this, EA was like, well, maybe we should work with Sony and make games for Sony. So the, the exclusivity that was supposed to surround the 3DO was no longer. Okay, <clears throat> so this was actually an important move for Sony to sort of court these outside developers. And the reason is, is because they did not have their own in-house development division like Sega did. And they did not have a backlog of arcade games like Sega did that could be ported over. So they needed to woo third-party developers to, to come to their platform. So they charged $10 a game in licensing fees, which was very low at the time, and they touted this. And they looked to what had happened with the 3DO, the Jaguar, and they saw that those consoles were very hard to program for. 
So they tried to make programming for the PlayStation as easy as possible, and for the most part, it was. To make games, you only had to work around this single chip. And Sony provided a whole suite of development tools to use. And so the magazine, Next Generation, talking about the chip at this, at this time, described it as elegant. Didn't we, in the Crash Bandicoot episode, um, didn't they get these work boxes, these work machines to make games for the PlayStation? Yes. And um, I can actually talk to you about where they came from, because there's an interesting tie-in to another one of our episodes as well. Um, yeah, so basically they would give out these development tools and you were supposed to just use the development tools and just yeah. use their assets. And what was interesting in the Crash Bandicoot episode all the way back in episode two was that they circumvented a lot of what they were like told to do. And there was worry that they were going to like burn the console up. They didn't, but... Um, Okay, so in this in this attempt to woo all of these third party groups, Sony sent out just in that year, uh, that month alone, May of of that year, um, they sent out representatives to meet with over a hundred different companies, and many of those companies were impressed with what Sony was offering. Developers started leaving Nintendo in droves over feuds over licensing and the fact that Nintendo cartridges has very limited memory compared to CDs. Our old friend, Peter Molyneux, <laughs> is quoted at this time as saying, it was like being released from jail in terms of the freedom that you have. Um, now, it didn't say in the article that I was reading what game he was working on at the time, but he claims that it only took him two weeks to port their code from the PC to the PlayStation. Probably some popular fast. game. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Okay, so what the hell am I getting at here? Why am I telling you all this? Because what this meant is that by the time the PlayStation launched in the US, which don't worry, we'll get there in a moment, they had already had close to 100 game companies who were working with them and around 300 games in production. That is a big deal. Yeah. But still, Sony didn't have any developers of their own who were making games. And what I hadn't mentioned before was that Sony did actually have a game publishing wing of the company that was based in the US. And the things that they had made were fucking terrible. <laughs> Most of their stuff was just really bad sports games that they had made in collaboration with ESPN, which were considered to be some of the worst sports <laughs> games on the market at the time. Or they had made some games based on popular movies. Um, pretty much their only hit was a game called Mickey Mania, which was a 2D platformer about Mickey Mouse. I had that. Did you really? I played it. It was a good game. Really difficult, too. I mean, that. well, that tracks with the early 90s. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I was just bad at it, but I, it felt really difficult. <laughs> yeah, I had that. Nice. Cool. Yeah. So, still, no in-house publishers. So they need, they need one. So in 1993, they decide to buy a little company called Psygnosis. Does that Ooh. name ring a bell, Docs? Psygnosis does... Lemmings. Lemmings. I'm so stupid. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, they were the publishing company that published Lemmings for DMA Design. I shall. I, shall. I don't know. I, I did that episode. <laughs> It's okay. Sometimes I think about episodes I did it. I'm like, wait. I even had lemmings for the PS1. What the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> no, it's okay. 
you can't be expected to remember everything. <laughs> yes, I am, man. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then, um, I'm. You're really bad, and how dare you? And this podcast is horrible and ruined forever because of you. Yeah. Let's keep going. <laughs> okay. So they buy. <laughs> They buy this company. And this move was kind of confusing to outsiders in, in the business sector because Lemmings was really the only tr- um, noteworthy thing that they had published at the time. So why this purchase? Some in the industry thought it was a sign of Sony trying to use money to essentially buy their way in. And so while we don't have exact numbers on how much they purchased Psygnosis for, um, it's said that they paid top dollar. However, the purchase turned out to be a good one. Sony gave them a large degree um, of autonomy to continue working as they did. And so um, Psygnosis turned their attention to publishing for the PlayStation and worked on games like Wipeout, G-Police, and Colony Wars. Although, as part of their contract, even though Sony owned them, they were still even allowed to publish games for other systems if they wanted, and they did. But, why am I telling you Interesting tidbit. Psychosis had Nintendo as an enemy as well, so technically, they just got another ally for, for their for their war against Nintendo. That's important. Yeah, they could all stand in the rain together. <laughs> Nintendo, <laughs> they're Nintendo! all just crushing crushing technology in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep on going. No, it's okay. Okay, so. Why was this an important purchase for them? Because they had created internal development kits previously for use at their own company, which they showed to Sony, and then they used their expertise in that field to help Sony create their development kits for the PlayStation. So the company that published Lemmings helped Sony create their development kits that everybody else used to make all the crazy cool games on the PlayStation. Nice. What, a, what an interesting tie-in, right? Yeah. The PlayStation launches in Japan in December 1994, only a week after the Saturn had dropped. Sega held a competitive edge in sales for a while, which was likely attributable to the fact that they had the exclusivity deal for Virtua Fighter, which we just mentioned, right? And they beat Sony in sales for a few weeks. In the first month, the Saturn sold 500,000 consoles and the PlayStation sold 300,000. But as time went on, Sony started picking up up steam. They pushed the PlayStation brand hard and leaned into marketing. Sony Computer Entertainment America was in charge of advertising the console to the United States, and they were staffed with several industry veterans who had successfully executed large advertising campaigns before. The main guy that we're going to talk about here is a guy named Steve Race, who was the president of SCEA. And he was someone who had been around in the industry a lot. He had been vice president of Atari's European division during their heyday, uh, a part of Worlds of Wonder, the company that marketed Teddy Ruxpin toys in the NES, and had even been brought in as a consultant for Sega in the 90s. And so dude knew what he was doing. And he surrounded himself with a lot of other people that aren't like totally important to mention here, but note that even the people he chose to surround himself with knew what they were doing with marketing. Yet there was, <clears throat> as we talked about in the Sega episode, friction between how um, the Sony uh, US division and the Sony Japan division wanted to conduct themselves. 
And so Race was constantly battling with Kudaragi or Oga about issues large and small. So here's a quote that he had about it. I've been over to Japan a couple of times, and we disagreed about pricing, positioning, advertising, color, and 99 other things that you would do for a product to Americanize it or make it acceptable in the United States. It was funny. I would say, why are we doing this controller? It should look like this, or it should be this size. Norio Oga was the president of Sony at the time, and they'd sort of say, oh, no, 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 no. Mr. Oga wants it this way. Mr. Oga designated this one. And I kept thinking to myself, what is a guy running a $44 billion company doing going around with controllers for a game system? (laughs) So... Their conflict was apparently well-known, and often it was spoken of that Race was going to be fired. What a fucking theme of this episode, right? Yeah. (laughs) He was loud, outspoken, and made sure that his opinions were known. (laughs) It's it's Kutsaragi's lost twin. (laughs) (laughs) So, the marketing... (laughs) Enemy plot twist. (laughs) (laughs) So... The marketing relied heavily on reaching out to teenagers and making ads that would appeal to them. And so why is this different than what other companies were doing at the time? So I guess that other companies internally had spoken of, well, they thought that if they advertised to adults, younger gamers might see these figures and look up to them. Like think about how like Trip Hawkins saw the 3DO, right? It was this very adult console yeah. and it was elegant and you'd look at it and go, oh, what a beautiful console that is that you've bought, Richard. And it would be there as you're, you know, swirling your fancy wine and everybody would talk about it. Yeah. Sony, on the other hand, was like, teenagers buy shit <laughs> and let's advertise to teenagers. And so what their their advertising department found was that if they um, advertised to both adults and teenagers with teenager-centric messaging, it worked on both. So adults Mm. and teenagers responded to the same shit. And so that explains how fucking weird a lot of the early PlayStation ads were because they were just pushing to make weird shit that teenagers would find edgy and adults then bought it too. It it would be interesting to now look at a bunch of stuff with that in mind and being like... Oh, that makes sense now because I I remember that they felt weird, but I never could put my finger on it. I don't have anything written about this, but just like anecdotally, like they would do things where they would basically be like, you know, they'd put out an ad that would be like, you're not ready for this or something like that. Or they, you know, it'd be very like adversarial, like, well, this console is only for people who kick lots of ass or something like not that specifically and so teenagers would be like fuck you man or be like wow i'm edgy like that too and adults would be like yeah i remember being 19 <laughs> now i have more disposable income yeah maybe if i play this i'll feel like a 19 year old again yeah maybe life is going to be okay again <laughs> <laughs> spoiler alert it wasn't <laughs> it never is it never is <laughs> Never is. Okay, so in May of 1995, the very first Electronic Entertainment Expo occurred and all of the big players were there. So the very first E3, 1995. Apparently, a bunch of people from Sony were there and they started playing like these big, like these weird pranks on Sega. 
I guess that Sega's stand had a giant Sonic, like this inflatable Sonic that the whole stand was built around. And apparently some people from like Sony went over and they deflated it. (laughs) And like the whole Sonic just like became mush in the center of the tent. And they had people who were there who were handing out leaflets to like people at the show. And the leaflets said something like, if you buy a Saturn, your head is in Uranus. <laughs> your face. <laughs> they didn't advertise to teenagers because they felt like it was a good idea. It's because they couldn't think of anything else because they are teenagers. <laughs> so teenagers. <laughs> You're a butt man. <laughs> Uranus. <laughs> you smell funny. <laughs> Your Sonic is deflated. <laughs> Look at your mush, Sonic. Gotta go fast to the ground, bitch. <laughs> Extreme, man. Wicked. Um, I I don't know that I have it in here, but I, I saw something at one point where like some Sony employees were like hostile to like Sega employees, like like even more so. And that like I guess there was like this woman from Sega who was like carrying in all of this like Saturn stuff. And apparently somebody from Sony yelled at her and told her that she should be ashamed of herself. (laughs) Just because she was working for Sega. Kutzerari and Ogre just built an army of of hateful people. (laughs) (laughs) Now, no, this is definitely on the US side, right? And this fits with a lot of the very in-your-face kind of shit that Sony in the US did, right? But everything I read about this first E3 is just fucking nuts, man. Like, I guess that, like, Michael Jackson showed up at the party for Sony. Nintendo held a concert. Steven Spielberg was at the show just, like, walking around. And like, Um, But Spielberg was really into, as we know, just like George Lucas, they both were really into video games. And they also had their own video game company. So it makes sense that they show up. Right, exactly. Sony, so like all the companies are there. They're 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 very much like peacocking and showing what they're capable of. And ooh, look at us, we're the best. Um, but Sony specifically tried to make a big deal of their upcoming games, and they showed off um, something like Tekken, for example. If Virtua Fighter's all the rage, here's this other game that looks way better, and it's called Tekken, and everybody was crazy about it. But the biggest hit at this show was yet to come. Now, I told this story in the Saturn episode, but I'll tell it again. But Tom Kalinske from Sega went up on stage and announced that the Saturn would be releasing early, which we talked about in that episode. In retrospect, bad move. Big bombshell. They thought that they had stolen the show. But what Sony did next was a power move. Okay, so the president of Sony Electronic Publishing at the time was Olaf Olafsson. And his job was to go up and speak not only about the PlayStation, but also um, about what it was going to be to take to be to be a successful storyteller in the coming years. That was his topic, like telling stories. And so this allowed him to talk about the PlayStation. And it was expected that at this particular talk that he would announce tech details about when the PlayStation would launch. And it was expected that the console would be very expensive, or at least as expensive as the Sega Saturn. But then Olafsson interrupts his own speech part of the way through. And here's Steve Race on this decision. Olaf was about two thirds of the way through his speech when he said, 
I'll like, I'd like to call up Steve race to tell you a little more about the PlayStation. So I walked up, I had a whole bunch of sheets of paper in my hand. I walked up, I put them down on the podium and I just said two ninety nine, and walked off stage to thunderous applause. <clears throat> Ever since they got humiliated in Las Vegas, they, they were like, we are never going to get humiliated at a convention again. Race, oh, yeah. you got to know this. These people are evil. <laughs> we will have to have a plan. They will try to humiliate us, but we will humiliate them. Nintendo! <laughs> <laughs> Look how adversarial they are, man. And they're controlling the show. They're yeah. controlling the narrative, right? Absolutely. Gloves are off. So... Sony ended up dominating the talk of E3, while Sega had created numerous problems with their gambit. But you know who we haven't heard about in a while, Docs? Peter Molyneux. Really talked about. <laughs> no, <who is>? <laughs> <laughs> no, we got to talk no, about Kutsuragi, him this episode. Right? Kutsuragi hasn't shown. No, 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 we we need to talk about somebody else. We need to talk about Trip Hawkins. Trip Hawkins. Trip Hawkins. <laughs> Trip Hawkins. Mm. Okay. <laughs> what does he do? Is he so naked? Here's a paragraph. What's, what's happening? <laughs> Here's a paragraph uh, from the ultimate history of video games by Stephen Kent about what he was doing at the show. And I included it here because it's relevant. Getting drunk, probably having fun, being nice to people. (laughs) (laughs) While Nintendo, Sega and Sony threw million dollar parties at E3, Trip Hawkins held a quiet and elegant dinner at a fine restaurant. In his typically socially graceful fashion, he left one seat open at every table and shuttled from one table to the next through the meal so that he could speak with all of his guests. During the meal, a reporter asked him what he thought of Sony. Sighing and looking a bit tired, Hawkins replied, For a company that is so new to the industry, I would have hoped that Sony would have made more mistakes by now. <laughs> such a villain. <laughs> He's such a villain. <laughs> I love it. It's just like the most Trip Hawkins thing ever, this, right? This would also be like the best end to the episode. Like you see, like Sony, like after after <laughs> after the entire episode, Sony was was in the mud. They were feeling terrible. They got betrayed by Nintendo and by Sega. But then they mm-hmm. make it, and in, at E three, they betray everyone else. And it's this uplifting feeling. And the scene it cuts to Trip Hawkins, and we know him from <laughs> earlier episodes. And, of course, and and we just see him. He, oh, his his entire face is always like hidden behind shade, so we never we only see the 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 um the outside Power. of his face. But his, his he has glasses <laughs> and they are shining, <laughs> and he's like <laughs> such a pity that they have not made more mistakes for now. And then the music, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the 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 outro credits start rolling, and there's like really fast and intense song playing i was gonna say you know what it would be it would be it would be the like a like a there's like a violin playing like a really strong violin in the background to like the like as trip hawkins is sitting there at his dinner his fancy dinner he's looking out and you're seeing sony basically destroying the industry (laughs) and all these vignettes to this like classical music yeah the movie writes itself oh oh, violin (laughs) because also when the the caesar nero when rome was burning that's like a really good history reference to man this is movie material it's perfect it is So if someone wants to contact us to write a script, we're not qualified, but we'll do it. Absolutely not qualified. 
<laughs> but there will be a lot of people screaming Nintendo in this movie, and it's going to be awesome. Nintendo! <laughs> so, while this is not entirely unexpected, Steve Race ended up leaving Sony in August of 1995. His clashes with Sony Japan were widely known. Here he is discussing it. Quote, We had celebrated differences of opinion as to where the product should be, how it should be priced, and how it should be positioned. I wouldn't say that we had screaming matches, but we had just had long pregnant pauses, and I questioned their heritage from whence they came. Something about female dogs. <clears throat> what? He, he, <laughs> he's he's clearly eluding that he called somebody at the at Sony a son of a bitch. <laughs> you know. Wow. Yeah, I know. I know, right? Such a nerd. He got him. He he got him. He can go fuck himself. I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Such a mysterious man. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he showed him. Oh man, Ooh, Sony's gonna go shove it. <laughs> I take that back. That's um, unfair towards him. He was trying to be cool about leaving a really big company, and you gotta keep your face somehow, right? So you gotta have a. And how to it's how to come up with something cool to say on the spot, right? So you gotta say yeah. something, something. It was also the '90s, and that was kind of a lot funnier than I guess. Probably. <laughs> So, all right. <clears throat> so, Sony shipped a hundred thousand consoles to the U.S. to prepare for a September 1995 release, and the hype was absolutely immense. The marketing department had done its job, and when the PlayStation released on September 9th, almost every console that they had shipped had already been purchased on pre-order, and then the rest sold out instantly. They absolutely destroyed the Sega Saturn on sales beating what their largest competitor had done in only two days of being on the market. As I mentioned in this um, Sega Saturn episode, right? Like they released early and they had a four month head start and uh, the Saturn did and Sega be or, uh, Sony beat them in two days, their sales. So here is uh, a man named Jim Wims, who was the executive president of Sony America talking about it. We told people we would ship on September 9th. We shipped on September 9th. We told them we'd have 10 to 15 titles in the first 30 days, and we had 15 titles in the first 30 days. We said that we would have 50 new titles out the, by the end of the calendar year, and we had 55 out by the end of the calendar year. We build credibility not only with the consumer, but with the trade. When you have two big competitors as firmly entrenched as Sega and Nintendo, which are both great companies, make no mistake about it, mistake about it you have to differentiate yourself. And I think that we did that. So I think, you know listening to him that's a lot of corporate speak right it's a lot of grandstanding but like he's not wrong they delivered on all of their promises so a lot of their sales were driven by the release of namco's ridge racer which was a big improvement over sega's arcade hit daytona usa and it sold a ton then at the end of september the console hit europe and by the end of the year they had all outsold sega by three to one in that market and then by the end of by the end of the year, it launched in Australia as well. In the US, <clears throat> by the end of that year, Sony controlled 20% of the market and had sold over 800,000 consoles. They were now solidly 
the front runner for the most sales of any fifth generation console, though do note that fourth gen consoles were still selling surprisingly well and were actually still selling more than fifth gen consoles. So like the Genesis, the SNES, were still selling more than PlayStations and other fifth gen consoles. Probably because the games for these consoles were amazing and they were getting mm -hmm. much cheaper, right? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> the next E3 is coming up. Uh, well, let me backtrack. So we hit 1996. And by the time 1996 rolled around, Sony had already made $2 billion in hardware and software sales for the PlayStation. And also, you all cannot see this, but Docs is holding the cutest cat I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> Which cat is this? This is Solvay. She likes to be held like this. <laughs> well, while Docs holds this absolutely adorable cat baby... <laughs> I'll tell you about the next E3. Let's do it. <laughs> so cute. So um, the next E3 is coming up. While the Nintendo 64 had not launched yet, it would drop later in 1996, Nintendo had predictions that they would be again dominating the industry with their release later that year, and they threw a fucking massive party at E3. Maybe we'll talk more about that in the N64 episode we're going to do, but they were convinced they were going to steal the show that year. That year. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then in true to form, Jim Wims, the guy I mentioned previously, the executive president of Sony America, he gives his keynote address. Sony was selling the PlayStation so fast that they could barely keep up with demand. But he walks out on stage and announces that the company is going to drop the price of the console from $299 to $199. Nintendo and Sega were absolutely floored because apparently... The companies had gotten together and made a gentleman's agreement before the show that they would not announce price changes during their speeches. Sony did it anyway. Here's Jim. <laughs> Last year, Steve got up and said $299 and the place went crazy. So dropping to $199, this had been part of our plans for a long time. Oh, if we had to hire a streaker to run across the stage with a sign that said $199, we would have done it. This was part of our legacy now. Don't miss the keynote address if Sony's up there. This is amazing. This is... Isn't it? They do it again. And, and they make it worse <laughs> by making a deal beforehand. Well, we're mm -hmm. not going to change the price during the convention. <laughs> we did this once. It was funny, but come on. We're not going to do it again. It would be ridiculous. Who would do something like that? I mean, we're honorable people, right? <laughs> who would who would betray someone they had to deal with, right? Nintendo? Who would do that? Yeah. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be terrible, Nintendo? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, to be publicly humiliated like that again? <laughs> oh, we wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> They couldn't stop themselves from crying. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, some some executive at, at Nintendo grabs a, a piece of technology and crushes it in his hand and screams, Sony! Sony! <laughs> so, with this again... Sega and Nintendo are forced to respond. But as we've mentioned in the podcast before, hardware manufacturing is expensive. No. And so Sony had this money in the bank and they could weather it. And other companies had a much harder time. Now, Jim, as we mentioned, um, he also ended up resigning not long after the show, though I could not seem to find a reason why he left. Um, Sony 
keeps p- building this momentum, picking up more speed. The summer's a busy one. Crash Bandicoot hits the audio, uh, the the market, and starts wowing audiences. It becomes um, a de facto mascot for the company, even though Sony refused to acknowledge him officially. And then, <clears throat> as the release of the N sixty four grew closer, Sony dealt them a large blow. They had courted SquareSoft. Producers of producer of games like Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger, Secret of Mana, they convinced Squaresoft to leave Nintendo and start making games for the PlayStation. And I won't dig too far here because I think that Final Fantasy deserves its own series of episodes. But Sony America had previously thought that U.S. audiences would not buy JRPGs. The release of Final Fantasy VII changed that, breaking it in, breaking into the U.S. market and absolutely killing it with sales. Um, I, as someone who had never played a JRPG before, uh, somehow, I don't know how it occurred. I ended up with a VHS, D- like, like advertisement about stuff coming to the PlayStation and on it, there was like this, like half an hour segment about final fantasy seven and how fucking cool it was and how it was going to just change the world. And it was the greatest game ever. And I really think that that dumb VHS is what got me into final fantasy games. So their marketing worked. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So it turned out that this mixture of brand familiarity and cool 90s advertising was working for them. So here's Jim Wims again. The other thing that really helped us, and this is important, is that when you put those four letters on a product, S-O-N-Y, it gives you tremendous credibility. It gives customers great permission to buy, particularly when they've been burned by the 3DOs and the Jaguars of the world. (laughs) He's not wrong. <laughs> he's, he's, he's not wrong, but uh, I, I like the hit on trip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to hurt him a bit, but he's not going to show. <laughs> He'd never show. No. Trip Hawkins never shows weakness. No. <laughs> okay. So, eventually... We know that the Sega Saturn stopped being produced, and it began a slow crawl toward its death. This left only two major players in the game, Sony and Nintendo. And Sony had a significant edge, simply due to the ease of producing CDs at a cheaper cost. But they still charged roughly the same price as Nintendo did for games, giving them higher profit margins. Further, they could crank out CDs pretty much immediately as needed, but cartridges took longer to produce. Internally, Ken Kutaragi's position was solidified at the company. His work had paid off. Norio Oga had become CEO and chairman at this time and decided to create a new group within the company to just work with the PlayStation. He picked out Kutaragi to be in charge of the entire operation. And so Kutaragi took the reins and began building. Two other divisions opened up, one in the U.S. and one in Europe. Hiring began across these divisions. Sony just started throwing money at them for marketing. They opened up new production facilities. Developers wanted in. Studios wanted partnerships. Money began to pour into the company. SCEI quickly became the most important and profitable arm of all of Sony Entertainment. Awesome. In 1997, Sony released an updated controller that they called the DualShock. Why am I telling you about this controller? Um, Because as the name implies, it had two sticks in addition to the normal D-pad as well as a vibration feature. I will gloss over a very long development history here, but the controller had a huge impact on controllers in the industry. Yeah, one thing, I to this day, I do not understand vibration features. And I had the DualShock controller 
and it I, I didn't understand it when I got that one. I was like, why would you invest money to put that into something? Because it feels like nothing. It feels like your controller is shaking, and that's how it feels like. It doesn't feel like your car is shaking. Yeah, and it, but it's still a thing. Why? Why? Okay, end of my hot take about that. Sorry. <laughs> I guess it's because it's like a sensory experience that you wouldn't normally have. So now instead of just visual, like audio and visual, you also have this like tactile experience. Is that well. our standard now? Just put in sensory experiences that you wouldn't have. Like, it, does it squirt water at you too, Tyler? Do you, do you want to get squirted at while playing your games? I can't wait until I can smell video games. Imagine how great that will be. Oh, you walk into a room full of rotting corpses? Mm-mm. And your controller yeah. vibrates a little bit. <laughs> and you puke on your computer. <laughs> and and, you, and, you, and it's, it's not a guarantee case because... <laughs> <laughs> that, that was your decision to turn on the smell control. <laughs> you have to sign off, off off on all this shit just to be able to turn on smell o vision. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's keep going. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, I just wanted to talk about this controller for just like a second because mm-hmm, yeah. it like totally changed how we view controllers moving forward. And like like the N64 tried to like copy this with like the rumble pack and stuff. Yeah. It was a whole thing. Um, also, <clears throat> Ape Escape uh, was the first game to require sticks like this for for the game, um, like the, the two stick system. Yeah. And I've been wanting to do an episode on that game. I've been having a really hard time getting good development notes on it. So if you're someone out there who wants to help me figure out how the fuck Ape Escape was made, hit me up. Because, man, I would I would love to know. Okay. So, <clears throat> of course, during this time, their success is massive. They begin to work on a follow-up console, which would eventually be called the PlayStation 2. We will try and talk about that on a future episode. It is way too much to fit into this one. So, the PlayStation is doing well, clearly dominating the market. Inside Sony, there was talk. Maybe Ken Kutaragi should be in charge of the company. Yeah, he's outspoken. He operates outside of these like normal channels, but the dude got shit done. So these rumors get back to him, and it is said that he wanted this position. He knew how he wanted to run the company and how the business should be. He had seen Oga climb the ladder in a similar way. Remember, he got hired because he sent an angry letter and then worked his way up to become CEO. Yeah. Now I'm skipping ahead here, but in 1999, Norio Oga did not name Kudaragi as the next president. Instead, he chose a man named Nobuyuki Ide, someone who had been both a director at Nestle and General Motors. He took the position of executive chairman from Oga when he retired in 2000 and was CEO and chairman by 2003. So why did Oga get ousted? Well, it's kind of a long story, and I actually think it would be better to save that story for another day. But just suffice it to say that Oga's personality... Um, made some splashes in the press. And with insiders at Sony still plotting against him, it just didn't pan out. Okay, so let's do a wrap-up here, because I think this is a fine place to end our discussion of the PlayStation. So they made a couple of different variations of the console. In 2000, they put out something called the PS1, and it's literally P-S-O-N-E, the PS1, which is what it was being called previously anyway, as they worked on the PS2. Um, And it was a smaller version of the console. 
that smaller version of the console alone sold like 28 million units. They didn't stop producing... It's something they do a lot. Like, they always bring out a console. Like, they did that for the PS2 too, and I think they did it for the PS3, Mm -hmm. that they just released a smaller version. Right. Sometimes they call it the slim version or something Mm, like that. Slim. Or they have a fancy name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They didn't stop producing... The PlayStation 1 until 2006, so they were making them for about 12 years. Um, In 2018, they released the PlayStation Classic, which came out during that little trend of releasing mini versions of old consoles. Oh, right, yeah, that was a thing. Mm -hmm. I think it came with like 20 games on it. Um, I bought one for someone in my family. Um, But in the aggregate, the PlayStation was incredibly successful. It was the first console ever to ship out over a hundred million units. I think the final number was something like 102 million. And that is just absolutely insane when it we is. compare to other companies. That is And especially times. considering that the PS1 was basically just revenge porn for Kutzeragi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they outsold Nintendo <clears throat> three to one. Um, and I think that they outsold the Saturn uh, 10 to one. There were 7,918 different games that came out for the PlayStation 1, and they sold a total of 962 million copies. Just mind-blowing. Almost a billion games sold for the PlayStation when it was relevant. Amazing. And it was really a game-changer because it showed that CD-ROM-based systems could be successful. And it just completely altered the landscape of what could be done. And obviously, they're not the first system to use CD-ROMs, but they were the first one to have mainstream appeal and success. And so this is why the PlayStation is frequently at the top of or near the top of best console lists. It's just simply due to how it sucked all the air out of the room in the 90s. And none of this would be possible if Ken Kutaragi hadn't constantly hidden things from Sony, and if Oga hadn't constantly saved him when bad things happen, and if Nintendo hadn't just totally stabbed Sony in the back, they would have worked with Nintendo and they would have had this partnership. And so yeah, it all it all it, it all makes sense as a as a chronological story, right? The things yeah. that happened in the end, they totally connect to the stuff in the beginning. The, the being betrayed and being a wild card too. Like they always do things that are unexpected. It kind of, mm-hmm. it, 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 it is a nice narrative. It was this perfect combination of just like all these things aligning to have this console be created. And then it was also like this perfect alignment for it to be successful. It was the right console at the right time. Yeah. After all these things that happened, like it was the perfect market and they just went, this is our market now. And they really just (laughs) kicked everybody in the teeth. (laughs) So like, if you want to talk about who quote won the console wars, um, Sony hands down just by sheer metrics and just by, um, like brand marketing. I mean, I think that they really crushed in Europe as well. Comparatively. Yeah. I can only speak from personal experience, but I PlayStation was everywhere. Yep. So <clears throat> that that wraps up 
that wraps up our discussion of the PlayStation. I would like to do a PlayStation 2 episode in the future. And also, we still need to talk about the N64. We need to talk about Nintendo's side of things. Um, but yeah, Nintendo, Nintendo. <laughs> uh, I wanted to note one thing, and that is this is our 20th episode. We have officially done this long enough to do 20 episodes of this. We can almost start oh. drinking alcohol. Just one more episode. <laughs> Just one more. We're old enough. Yeah. In, in Germany, I've been drinking alcohol since episode 14, but I, I couldn't tell Tyler. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to go with this bit. No, uh, I just, just want to say, you know, it. hey, thanks to um, thanks to you for being here, man. Um, and thanks to all of you who continue to listen. And thanks to all of you who continue to support us. And like your feedback really does help and it does keep us going. So thank you. Um, Dogs, why are, is there anything why, you, why are say? you speaking of several persons if it's just an ammo? But, um. <laughs> It's it's just a listed owl out there. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, he's all of our, yeah. It's a listed owl. It's all Sorry. of his. He's all of the views from Australia. <laughs> Shout out to Australia. Uh, Shout out to and... Illicit Australia. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. Thank you to you, to you too, and thank you for this episode. Let's do twenty more. Let's do twenty more. Um, yeah. So again, sorry to all of you who had to wait for a while. Life's been crazy. Um, maybe you will never have to hear me say the word dissertation again. And I sincerely hope that I never have to. So it's not over yet. Do not put trust in this man. If he says things like this, he said to me this <laughs> stuff <laughs> long time ago. It's true. <laughs> I've been disappointed a few times and until I'm, I'm going to believe it when it happens. And if it happens, I will not mention that it happened because then it will put the word dissertation into his mind again and he will talk about it again. And <laughs> maybe all of a sudden he has to do another dissertation for some reason. I don't know. I'm not writing dissertation. I don't know how that shit works. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a lot. <laughs> but anyway, thanks to all of you for sticking with us as our lives go in crazy directions. Um, it just is really appreciated. So talks, do you have anything that you want to say about the PlayStation or the podcast or life or I don't know your adorable cats? No, no, nothing. My cats are sleeping. So you're fine. I love them to sleep with my boring voice. And I just want to add one thing last one last time. I want to say mm -hmm. Nintendo. Saturday! <laughs> And that's it. <laughs> I hope all of you have a good day. Okay. And take care of yourselves. Yep. Be good to each other out there. We'll see you around. Bye.